I'm Joe White, the voice of Chris Redfield. When I'm not surviving the horror of the Spencer Mansion, I'm listening to the Crimson Head Elder podcast. This is Katie O'Hagan, the voice of Mia Winters, and when I'm not babysitting temperamental bioweapons, I'm listening to the Crimson Head Elder podcast. My name is Richard Wall. Just think of me as a ghost from the past. This is Paula Rhodes, Evelyn in Resident Evil 7 Biohazard. This is Michelle Ruff, the voice of Jill Valentine. I'm Riva DePala, the voice of Rebecca Chambers. Hi, my name is Allison Court. My name is Sarah Coates, the voice of Marguerite Baker, and you are listening to Crimson Head Elder Podcast. Wanna come to dinner? Welcome to the Crimson Head Podcast, a House Beneviente special with two very special guests. Who better to ask than the actor for Donna Beneviento? So delighted to have with us today, Andy Norris. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm very excited about this podcast. <laughs> thank you, Andy. <laughs> and a very special privilege as well to also have with us the writer of Resident Evil Village and many of the Dead Space installments too. We have with us today, Anthony Johnson. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Anthony. Well, as regular listeners will know, you've got myself, George Trevor, and joining me today, we've got the rest of the Crimson Head gang. We've got the Oracle Dragon. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Oracle. And we've got newest member of the team on her first podcast with us. We've got Batgirl. Hey, everyone. Thank you guys for joining us. Thanks, Batgirl. And we've got a special guest podcaster with us today, very much in the community, doing videos with the Residents of Evil and her own videos too. With us today, we've got Beg. Hey, what's up, everyone? Thanks so much for inviting me, George. That's a pleasure. So delighted to have everyone with us today. We're really going to get into some fantastic House Beneviento chat. We're first going to look at the narrative origin with Anthony Johnson, writer of Resident Evil Village. Beg, we'll hand over to you. You've got the first question. Okay, sounds great. So to start us off, for Anthony, what were your starting contributions to the narrative that became the House Beneviento scenario? And what overall themes and atmosphere do you focus on? Hello, Beg. So I am, first of all, going to emphasize that this game and all video games writing, especially when you get into the AAA sphere, is teamwork. I was the script writer, but there are a whole legion of other people I worked with coming up with story. And there was the director, Sato-san, who had massive narrative input into the game. And there are other people working on other aspects of the narrative, such as item descriptions and stuff that I didn't do at all. And part of the reason that I want to preface with that is because Hasben and Viento was basically Sato-san's baby, if you'll pardon the pun. It was his <laughs> vision. He guided this section of the game through its creation. So by the time I came on board and when we got in the original week-long writer's room where we kind of hammered out lore and plot and what have you for Village, some parts had already been not completely established, but certainly, you know, there was a vision for certain parts of the game, and this was one of them. The details were not finalized by any means, but the idea that this would be, it was originally referred to, I believe, as the witch house, actually. The idea that we would have a section like this that was very much more on the psychological horror side of things, and that was much more unsettling and spooky, as opposed to, you know, the, the action that you expect from regular sort of Resident Evil. That idea was already very much in place. So my contributions were about how we could fulfill Satosan's vision 
And we went through lots of different ideas. One of the things that may surprise many people is that in the first instance, I actually wrote pages and pages and pages of traditional cutscene narrative script for this section. And throughout development, we just cut and cut and cut until we got to the point, as you know, where we are now, where there's almost no traditional <laughs> scripted cutscene narrative. But it was just because we didn't need it. It right. was spooky and unsettling enough, you know, the things we were going for without needing heavy handed cinematics. And the section was much more effective, letting it play out in the mind of the player to an extent. That's a very long established horror mechanism, if you like, a method of uh, telling horror stories. And we felt that for this particular section, it really worked better that way. But in terms of themes and atmosphere, it was very much about that psychological side, getting inside the player's mind. This is one of the reasons why there are basically no enemies until the very end, because that is really unsettling, especially when you've just come from shooting zombies in the face <laughs> and in the other sections and being chased around uh, Lady Dimitrescu's mansion and, and what have you, to suddenly then enter a space where actually there are no enemies, but you don't know that. And so you're constantly looking in the shadows and around every corner we knew would be you know, really unsettling. This is one of the reasons why I love that section and why I'm sure it is a favourite for many players. We were all working towards fulfilling Satosan's vision of having a section like that in the game, because that is quite unusual for a Resident Evil game, and we knew that at the time. Yeah, definitely. I think that's one of the most memorable qualities of this entire segment of the game, is that not only do the lack of enemies kind of play with the player's head, but also the discovering of the game files and the actual science behind the madness retroactively after escaping from the Beneviento house is the only time when you get an explanation for what's going on here. And all that mystery and the pollen from Donna's flowers is only discoverable to the player afterwards. I think that immensely adds to the mystery and the confusion and the fear. And it's almost like the game mechanics complement that as well, because after leaving from House D, you actually have so many upgrades in terms of your guns, in terms of maybe your movement, all of the food that you've cooked and eaten that's upgrading Ethan. You feel ready to take on something new and there's nothing physical anymore you're so used yeah. to fighting these physical creatures and you're confronted with this kind of nebulous vague aura of just tension and fear in a way that you're not ready for and that exists nowhere like such in any other place of the game that makes this segment of the game probably the most memorable segment for the vast majority of players yeah, you can't shoot it. This is an enemy that you cannot kill with a gun. That is always unsettling. I will say, actually, the explanation stuff, the pollen files you referred to and all that, I didn't know that that was going to be in the full game. Wow. The idea that it wouldn't be explained during House Beneviento, I think, was always there. I don't think I ever wrote a draft where that was explained at the time. As I say, I did write many, many more pages of, like, sort of ending cutscenes and much longer death scenes for Donna, which I'm very sorry, Andy, that you didn't get to... <laughs> play out as i say we ended up dropping almost all of it but yeah i didn't actually know until i saw the finished game that an explanation for donna's powers if you like and for what was going on inside the house was actually going to be given to the player i thought we were going to keep that from them all along and i don't wow. think it's any less effective for it but you're right that it was more effective either way in that you don't find out at the time and it's only in retrospect that you get any kind of explanation i think that was that was a good decision 
Right. And see, that's the way that I would feel a lot of Resident Evil fans would appreciate from the previous entries, whether or not you're going to dive into the science and the virology before encountering these ghastly beings. Having that information at some point later, it's staying true to the Resident Evil way of actually diving into the virology. During the exploration of House Beneviento, there's a little document with no words on it at all. It's just a drawing of that plant. And it kind of makes the player wonder, like, what are the implications of this image that I'm looking at with no words? And then later on, you find out what its significance actually is. And I think that's really cool. See, you're right. And that's why it was the right decision to put that stuff in. And that's also why it's the collaborative aspect and the teamwork aspect of writing on a game like this is important because the guys over there in Osaka know Resident Evil and know the lore and know what players expect better than I ever could. So I'm sure you're right that players appreciate the fact that there is scientific and virology explanation for it. If I'd been left to my own devices, I would have just never explained anything. <laughs> sure, players would have hated me for that. So. <laughs> You know, something I found really fascinating about um, initially calling this a witch house, a ghost house, just how kind of syncretistic and this game is with all of its horror influences and, and, and all of its naming of different creatures and beings. I remember in some of the mar marketing material, the Dimitrescu daughters were actually called witches. A lot of these concepts across the world and different folklores actually blend together, even if we would more so associate with vampires and vampiric beings. There are many cultures in which witches will allegedly thought to meet at night in sabbats, trying to sacrifice infants, trying to bring about the revival of dead people, all of this related phenomena. And so seeing that vague nebulous air applied to House Beneviento, it almost doesn't give a precise definition to what the horror is entailing. It's like its own kind of blend. It's like a hybrid um, of not necessarily ghost or, or witch horror or doll. It's just some kind of nebulous Resident Evil-ized version of all those that somehow works. None of the other villains play with your head like that, like Donna does with Ethan. Yeah, it's much more primeval and does get inside your head. Just before I asked a very quick follow-up question, Andy, was there anything that you wanted to add from the actor's point of view? Well, it was interesting because I don't think that they had removed all of that content when I auditioned for the role, because I auditioned with a pretty hefty script for Donna. Yeah, yeah. And when I was hired and they were like, there's like two lines. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, sorry. You know, I wasn't, well, it's okay. It's okay because at that point I'd already like fallen in love with the character. It was just, and I'm glad, I'm glad that I had the information at the audition so that oh, right. I had slightly more information to build from because they don't give you the entire story when you start. You never see an entire script. You are given your scenes. That's something that people who aren't professional storytellers, at least, often don't realize. Having that information, as you say, helps, even if it's never given to the audience, it helps you as an actor, as a performer, to embody that character, to understand where she's coming from and why. Because all of the stuff that I wrote is still quote-unquote true, it just wasn't revealed to the player. But you having it enabled you to, as you say, at least understand where the character was coming from and imbue a reality into that character. Absolutely. It gave me a, a launching off point for building, you know, my own backstory in lieu of what was missing. Yeah. And that's so important for, for actors in particular. Yeah, absolutely. 
It's interesting you used the word, Anthony, unusual in terms of the psychological aspect being injected into Resident Evil as a series. And I just wondered, like, during the script writing for that, was there a conversation or even kind of like an air that you had to maybe dial back on that or maybe not go too much into that? Because I'm not sure if you're aware, the beta version of Resident Evil 4, that was very much in that kind of that theme of a psychological horror. And Leon S. Kennedy, the protagonist, was, was hallucinating. So many of the fans bemoaned that removal. But at the the same time i was aware as a big fan of that others being critical saying no this silent hill type horror doesn't belong in in the series so i just wondered if there was kind of an air of that i wasn't aware of the beta for resident evil 4 that that in itself is interesting because uh, resident evil 4 as i'm sure you know was a, a great influence on dead space another game that i worked on so but i wasn't aware of the uh, the 3.5 thing i think everybody involved was aware that we were doing something unusual it wasn't a sort of standard thing that you would expect in a Resident Evil game. But the thing is that Resident Evil has morphed and changed and evolved so much throughout its life. It's difficult to really say what is Resident Evil game, you know? There really kind of isn't such a thing. That said, yes, we all knew that this could be controversial and that it's not the sort of thing that most people would come to the franchise expecting. But the unique hub-and-spoke nature of the game design meant that we could have that that we could have these very separate feeling sections of the game, that we could kind of silo off the four lords and their domains. It was a very deliberate decision to make each one a different kind of game, use different methods, as I said, spoke about the sort of the mechanics of horror storytelling, to use as many of the different mechanics and methods as we could in each one. I think you can read too much into that, and I, I think people shouldn't. You know, it, It's not like we had a big spreadsheet where we said, right, this is the uh, psychological section, and therefore we'll use these mechanics and these methods only in this section. Well, it wasn't quite that clean cut, but certain types of horror will lend themselves to certain types of storytelling, just naturally. That's very evident in the final product, and that was something, as I say, we didn't necessarily set out clinically to do it, but we did gravitate towards it throughout development. I'm curious, was there a monster design for Donna? The other lords all have them at the end that you end up fighting this monster form, but Donna, you're fighting Angie the whole way? Was there ever a change in form for Donna? No, is the short answer. Uh, <laughs> the slightly more complex answer is that there was some debate about whether or not she was already scarred, whether we would ever see her without the scarring uh, mm -hmm. underneath the veil. As it turned out, we only see her in that form, other than in the painting. But there was some debate about that, but no, the, the, she never transformed into a monster in the way that somebody like Dimitres does. However, at the same time, was the boss fight always going to be with Angie? Actually, no. <laughs> <laughs> Angie was always there and was always obviously the sort of, you know, the dark id, if you like, of Donna's character. That was always the case. But because it, it was decided very early on that the whole of the Benevienta thing would be, you know, a hallucination, that, that was set right from the start. And I think there was even an early discussion about possibly Ethan fighting Mia. Mia being the boss, and then of course revealing that it's not Mia, that it's, you know, a hallucination and maybe was even Donna herself. That never went further than sort of the paper prototype, as it were. But the whole question of how 
to end the ghost house, the witch house, was one that went back and forth for quite some time because it is a difficult thing to, you know, this is a problem that many horror movies, many horror games, many horror novels face. The more internal and psychological you make the horror, the more incongruous it can be if you then suddenly have to run around shooting your Uzi 9mm at uh, this big lumbering monster. It can often seem very kind of like, hang on a minute, is this really the same thing? Yeah, it took a while because it's a tricky one. I think we got it right in the end, and I think the Angie fight is a good one because it allowed for some narrative exposition as well, and it is kind of fitting that she would be the boss. But yeah, it's just another example of how much things change and the very amorphous nature of development. But no, there was never a monster form for Donna. That's one thing we didn't deprive you of, as it were. (laughs) We never would have had you lumbering around a motion cap stage, you know, on stilts or something, (laughs) shouting obscenities at the player. (laughs) Well, that's ironically most of what I do is uh, creatures on mocap. I have a follow-up question on this. So I've had a number of discussions with the fans And there's two conflicting ideas where the hallucinations come from and how involved Donna is. Because I've got this one group, hashtag Donna did no wrong, and is a victim through the entire thing, that Angie and Donna are very separate, and that the entire fight Donna is actually running from Ethan, not attacking him. And the other camp is that Donna is in control of these hallucinations and actually messing with Ethan's mind out of a form of jealousy and loss. That's really interesting. And as so often is the case, I'm going to take the third way, which is to say (laughs) that actually both of those things can be true. I don't think this is addressed in the game, in canon as it were, but to the best of my recollection, the idea was that Donna is responsible, but not necessarily in control. So yes, this is her domain and she is sort of inducing the hallucinations, although also suffering from them herself, but she's not necessarily controlling them. They are very much a reflection of Ethan's own anxieties and dark side and and all that sort of thing. Angie is very much Donna's dark side. And like I said before, Donna's sort of dark id. That much is pretty definitive, I think, that Angie is an outgrowth of Donna's subconscious and darker side. Donna, she is responsible, but she's not necessarily... I don't think she's running from Ethan, but she's not necessarily in control of what's going on in that house. This is something that I thought added greatly to the cohesion of all the villains in Resident Evil Village. The idea that Mother Miranda just sees the foreheads of the village as test subjects, and she's just trying to find the perfect vessel. And so every single househead becomes just infuriatingly envious of Rose, Ethan's baby, and she is the perfect vessel. So it makes sense that in a lot of Angie's lines, she says, you do this to Rose too. Everything would be better if Rose wasn't born. All of these lines are kind of Angie is like that manifestation of her inner envy, of her inner thorns that are kind of like picking at her, her inability to live up to the expectation of her mother as the perfect vessel. And so that hatred and that envy is then injected into Angie more so than any of the other dolls or any of her other manifestations. Her whole nature may not be that envious and just hating Rose and Ethan for what they are. This portion of it, Angie, has the strongest semblance of that. 
and the whole baby creature, a reimagining of Rose in a disgusting, envious fashion, this disgusting thing that's taken away from the love of my mother, and I hate it, and this is what I see it as. Yeah, but also consider, like I said, that this is, the hallucinations are also a reflection of Ethan's dark subconscious. When you consider Angie's lines in that possible light, they take on an even more sinister tone. I'm not saying that either of those is necessarily the whole truth, but it's interesting to consider both sides of that. I was just wondering whether it was a development throwback or intentional. The portrait of Donna, which we see without the scar, if that was relating back to the stage that you mentioned, Anthony, when she was going to have that face, or perhaps is it speaking to the hallucinations again, or is that how she wanted to portray herself? I think it's entirely that, yeah, that's her self-image and that's how she wishes other people could see her. I would think, surely, Andy, you'd agree with that, that that's kind of a deep inner need that the character has. Absolutely, I do. It is reassuring to hear you say that, because I know that is a question that has come up to me a lot is, well, is her scar psychological in nature? Or is her scar physical? And if it's physical, why is it not present in the photo or in the portrait? I can only answer from what I did as an actor. As you know, I have to be very careful in how I word things as this is purely my made up thing. and This is not canon. No, that's actually really, really great to hear you say that and that we were in alignment. I've been waiting for so long. I'd make a much better daughter than Rose. Please, won't you stay with me forever? Our next part where we're discussing and looking into the character of Donna Beneviento. Batgirl, I think you have the first question. Yes. What is your character analysis for Donna Beneviento and how have these traits taken her character beyond what we see in the game and in and into personal interactions you've shared with fans? This is a big one. So I started building Donna off of what I had from the sides in the audition. It was far more obvious that Donna was speaking through Angie. In the game, you don't actually find out that that's what's happening until a little later when you see the gardener's notes. But in the sides that I had, it was very clear. I mean, the characters were basically like Donna and then Donna child voice. That's what I was building off of. That was information that I had. And I knew some of her backstory. You know, I knew about her parents dying. I knew about Mother Miranda adopting her. I knew about her having a disfigurement that created this extreme social anxiety and then speaking through Angie, right? From that, I kind of went into a little bit of a psychology background that I've had experience with. It's really common for children who have dealt with severe trauma to rework that trauma through their toys and just the process of playing. They learn to accept and or repel against this trauma. So I kind of took that idea with Donna and the dolls in recreating the parents' death with these dolls and becoming obsessed with this trauma. None of this is canon. This is purely what I did for me. In building that took Donna to a beyond just a social anxiety, but a deep, really painful place where when she is finally rejected by Mother Miranda, she has now lost everything that she has. Angie is the only thing she has left. And it is this dark, sinister part of her. 
You know, what's amazing about that analysis is that if you look at all of the other dolls, uh, there's actually a file at the end in that kind of research room of Mother Miranda's about Donna. And it actually says that Donna divided her kadu among her dolls. But with Angie being the only one left and that awful, sinister part of her, that kind of shattered piece of Donna is the only one that kind of prominently stands up and speaks anymore. I think that says a lot about the other dolls that are kind of like, they're really frantic and they kind of shake maniacally. It almost seems like they're old imaginings of Donna's tormented mental state, whereas Angie is the only one that is actually communicable anymore. She's the only intelligible one because it is the only one that actually represents what is left of her. The other ones are just incoherent and they're unintelligible. That actually adds to what you were saying, Angie being the only one that has actually lived through Donna's, her trauma and come out on the other side after being rejected. But there's also something too, Angie being the original. Angie was the gift. You have in the gardener's notes too that he says that Donna only speaks through Angie. So I don't know if the other dolls were ever coherent, but I do love the idea they are former aspects or former attempts at closure. Just different parts of her that have died. And even with Mother Miranda's rejection, while you actually face to face with Donna, she actually tells you that she can't allow you to leave. So she's still trying to please her in a way. I absolutely agree with that. Again, none of this is canon. This was just all my background. But what is interesting, you talked, you asked about the personal interactions. They've been really unexpected and really, this is a weird phrase, but heartwarmingly painful in so many people identify with Donna. And I think this is where the idea of Donna did no wrong has come from, is that I receive messages every day about people dealing with social anxiety, people dealing with depression, people dealing with suicidal thoughts, and how Donna spoke to them. Donna resonated with them. And they're thanking me for doing this. And I'm like, that's not me, you know? <laughs> like, I went through this so that there is an empathetic link. But Donna has become her own thing. Anthony, you talk about how many people go into writing a video game. There's so many more that go into building one character. There's so much more to Donna than what you see in the game. And the process that I went through in building Donna was so much bigger than what you end up seeing. I'll just interject and say, firstly, I think you got it. I don't think you need to worry about your interpretation of the character. Certainly in terms of our intention, I think you you absolutely got it. And there is so much unexplained in the game. But the one thing that we, our guiding light, as it were, for all of this, even when I was writing those pages and pages of cutscenes, was that Donna's story is ultimately tragic. That's not speaking to whether or not she is responsible or whether it's what happens to her is just. And those are discussions for other people to have, to be honest. I think that's the sort of thing that generates good audience discussion. But we did absolutely want it to be tragic and for her to be a tragic figure. Even more so than somebody like Moreau. Moreau's fairly tragic as well, but Moreau's kind of pathetically tragic. Donna is very much more traditionally gothically tragic. That was something that I strove to get across whenever I could. The cutscenes that were written but were ultimately not used did reflect that. No writer likes cutting things. <laughs> you always wish that everything could, that you write could be used. But on the other hand, people clearly took the right things away from Donna. I think it shows that sometimes less is more, that you simply do not need pages and pages and pages of exposition and cutscenes to get your point across. I agree. And obviously, as an actor, there's part of me that's biased, right? And I want, I want more screen time. But ultimately, I think what really gets that experience of Donna across is her silence. 
And so I think that was a beautiful decision. I actually went back and I read the audition sides again. And I was like, oh, nope, this was the right call. (laughs) You know, these sides were really fun. But now that I understand her more, her not saying anything is a much stronger move. I actually forgotten about that whole uh, Donna Brackett's child's voice business because <laughs> I wrote all the audition sides. I'd completely forgotten about that part. Yeah. Originally, that was the plan was that Angie's voice would be obviously Donna putting on, you know, a doll sing song kind of child voice. Obviously, mm-hmm. that's not what we went for in the end, but that was the original conception. But I'd actually completely forgotten that I literally put that <laughs> on the side. <laughs> A lot of Resident Evil villains have multiple games in which they kind of build up their backstory and then they all come crashing down in one entry, like Wesker, Birkin, Chief Irons. They all have these moments of building up what is driving them. And it's usually something more trivial. It's usually something like money, the ability to to rule over people. But Donna is just in one entry. You have this look into her childhood and her trauma. Resident Evil doesn't often look into the childhoods of many of its tormented villains that you feel sympathy for. This is one instance where they did that masterfully and they left just the perfect amount open to interpretation. The discussion of the auditions actually makes me think there's something that doesn't get talked about a lot. Those audition sides that you saw, Andy, are not scenes from the game. In the case of the Donna character, we cut almost all of her scenes anyway. But nevertheless, the sides that went to, you know, people auditioning for Heisenberg or for Lady Dimitrescu and so on, they're not actually scenes from the game. We draw on scenes from the game for them, but with those sides, what you're trying to do in a very, very short amount of time, you are trying to write something that an actor can use to reveal the essence of the character and that will let the director, the casting directors, whoever, see whether or not that actor can get to that essence of the character. And a regular game scene isn't really going to do that because obviously game scenes are written as part of a sequence. You know, you normally have more than one, many more than one sometimes. And so you build things up. Well, you can't do that if you're doing a 60 second, you know, screen (laughs) test audition. So yeah, all the sides, and this isn't just Resident Evil, this is true in all games, especially games where there's an element of secrecy. And that was true when I did my writing test as well, before they officially told me it was Resident Evil. I did a writing test for characters with very bizarre names that had nothing to do with the final game. They're not scenes from the game. We don't just pluck a scene out of the game and say, here, read this. You know, they are written very specifically to be audition sides. That's an excellent point to bring up. Yeah. And I went back and I was looking at them and I was like, I don't even think that this discussion would ever happen between any of the characters that I can think of. I didn't know that I was auditioning for Resident Evil. I didn't even know at the table read after I booked it. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Because I didn't, I hadn't played any of the other games. So after we did the table read, and, and again, like I said, we only had our scenes. We didn't have the entire script. I went to my car and I started Googling the names because I was like, what game am I in? (laughs) And that was how I found out that I was Resident Evil. That's fantastic. (laughs) It happens more often than you think. I can remember there was an interview with Sarah Coates and she didn't know. Halfway through filming Seven, she's like, oh wait, this is Resident Evil? (laughs) Yeah, they keep things on, on lockdown. Dawn is my favorite of the Lords, and it's probably because of the interpretation Andy gave us with her background, her story, and just her being such a tragic character. It just made me sympathize more with her, even if she was supposed to be a villain. There was a lot of her that drew me into the character more, and I just wanted to keep learning more about her because of everything she went through. The best villains are the ones that you can sympathize with. The other reason why a lot of people like Donna is because she's the only villain so far that did not mutate. 
she's still human. Even though she's infected, she's still a tragic character because she's still human. Because the moment when you finally do the final blow on supposedly Angie, you find Donna under you, and you had just stabbed her to death. So a lot of people were surprised by that, because the moment the hallucinations ended, you come to realize you just murdered her in cold blood because you thought you were killing the doll. And a lot of people are so impacted by that because a lot of them feel so regretful for having done that to her after learning how much suffering she's gone through. I'm glad that it had such an impact because, yeah, again, that was, regardless of the details of how that was revealed, the idea that, yes, the fog lifts and you realise that you have actually killed Donna was there right from the start. And yes, you're right, it is very powerful. I'm glad that it's had that impact upon players. I did stream my first playthrough of the game when the fog actually lifts and I say that it's not Angie, it's actually Donna. I just go, oh no! <laughs> I panicked for like a good minute. <laughs> you have that reaction because she's the only one who's still human. You know, she doesn't look like a zombie. She doesn't look like some crazy T-virus creature or whatever. She's just, just a human. It does play on your psyche because you're killing monsters this entire time, but then all of a sudden a plot twist happens and you're just killing another human. You were not expecting that, and a lot of people get really affected by that. Good. (laughs) 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 You are never going to get out of here! So this is for Andy. Uh, How would you distinguish the two aspects of Donna's character as portrayed in your motion capture scenes and then through Angie as a vehicle for Donna's emotions? Given that there were two actors for that, that I was Donna and Paula was Angie, the responsibility for that was split. I was responsible for creating this stillness and this fear and this apprehension. And Paula had the butt wiggle. The first time she did that on stage, I was like, don't laugh, don't laugh, don't laugh. You know, and I'm in the background. And I love all the fans who are like, you can see Andy laughing. And I was like, no, you can't. That's, that's, not, that's not the take they took. But I guess just being as far from what Paula did as I could, we both reached the opposite extremes. I will say this, though, in the audition, I did do both roles. That was a treat. One of my favorite auditions of all time was jumping between Donna and Angie, because then you really do get to explore this polarizing position. But ultimately, I'm glad they had Paula do Angie, because what she did, nothing compares to what she did. The way that Donna has Angie is a kind of a vehicle to communicate with the outside world. And you've spoken before about your personal interaction with, with the fans. It was very special for me when we first spoke. I was able to share with you how and why the Crimson Head website started and how that was a vehicle for me to communicate. It was a very, very special moment for me as a fan to be able to share with you why I was in, you know, that situation where that was the only way that I was able to communicate with the world. And I was just George Trevor and not Paul. That was very special that you were able to share that with me. And I want to be clear for the people listening that I am open to those messages. I want people to feel like they can express and talk about these things because I think it is very important not to keep it hidden. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you, Andy. Moving on, we've now got a selection of questions for both Andy and Anthony, looking at the Donna Benevento character. Andy, you've greatly contributed to the survival horror series Dead Space, having written for Dead Space and Dead Space Extraction, and authored the graphic novels Dead Space, Dead Space Extraction, and Dead Space Salvage. 
Series protagonist Isaac Clarke is not the typical video game hero. What was the reason for making him an engineer rather than the far more common profile, let's say, of a soldier? And as is almost also the case with Donna Beneviento, for keeping the character's voice hidden. So Isaac Clarke is an engineer for the same reason that protagonists in horror movies and horror novels are ordinary people. We were not making aliens. Much as we all loved aliens and it was an influence in some ways upon Dead Space, that's not the game we were making. Long, long before I came on board, you know, this was Glenn Schofield's vision right from the start, was that Isaac Clarke would be an engineer because that is the equivalent of the everyman. In Alien, as opposed to Aliens, if you like, you know, the space trucker outwitting the uh, the deadly monster, as opposed to the well-armed Marines. Well, who's the everyman in space? Well, it's the engineer. It's the guy who fixes the engines that nobody respects and nobody considers is important in any way. Yeah. As for him not speaking, that's actually different compared to Donna. The silent protagonist in video games is an ongoing debate that I'm sure will continue on long after we have all turned to dust. Some people believe that silent protagonists are easier for players to identify with because it doesn't put words in their mouth. I personally disagree with that in general, although there have been some instances of silent protagonists that I think have worked very well. As a writer, it made my job very bloody difficult and continues to whenever I encounter a game that wants me to write a silent protagonist. But it was done purely for those reasons. With Donna, it was more about cutting down the amount of scripted cinematics because we just didn't need them and we wanted more and more of that section to take place in the player's mind. So it wasn't so much about keeping the character's voice hidden as just not needing to hear it. And that's a subtle difference, but I think it's an important one. Don't leave. I can't let you... You're still alive. Okie dokie. We can tolerate the thunder in the background, which adds some more spookiness to this. <laughs> in an interview with the Resident Evil podcast, you mentioned that removed ideas may sometimes need to be first pursued to allow you as a writer to get a point where you need to be with the character. And so subsequently removing that content aids the overall story and not weaken it by the removal. However, with House B. Beneviento, you feel there would have been a value in exploring Donna's relationship with extended family and in players discovering a larger biography? I think that's an interesting question that is impossible to answer because you don't know what you would have lost by gaining more exposition and more knowledge. And it all comes back again to this business of, you know, is less more and how much do you need to know and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, the point about cutting things without weakening the story is just that we as the storytellers, the story creators, need to know much more than the audience does because we need to present the story in a consistent fashion and to do so in a way that makes logical sense within the, the story world. And to do so, we have to know pretty much everything. But the audience does not need to know all those things to be entertained and for the series of events to make logical sense within their mind and within their experience. There's an old adage called the 80-20 rule, which can be applied to many, many things. And this is absolutely one of them. If you imagine everything that you write in preparation for a video game is 100% is of the material, 80% of it, the audience never sees. The players never see it. But it is absolutely vital to make that other 20% work. 
and to make it logically consistent, as I say, within the fiction. So would there have been value? I mean, yes, because obviously we could have told players more. We could have laid things out in more detail, explored the psychology of Donna more. But by putting that stuff in, by leaving that stuff in, would we have weakened the experience? Would we actually have revealed too much? And would she therefore not be as beloved a character as she has become? leave them wanting more is an old cliche for a reason it's absolutely yeah. true we can all think of tv shows movies books yes. that we love and desperately wish there was more of and then there are many many others where we have been given as much as you could possibly want and you kind of get tired of it after a while and that's always a risk trying to find that balance i think ultimately we found it with uh, has beneviento because there are plenty other. Look at all the other scenes, all the other sections. You get as much explanation as you could possibly want, as much exposition as you could possibly want from all of those. And this is the one where you don't. And this is the one that has profoundly affected a certain section of the audience in ways that the others did not. And I think that in itself is very telling. I think there's a lot of value in tying Donna closer to the other lords and Miranda rather than centralizing her storyline on her previous family. Once you tie her into the conflict and the, the envy that's festering among the other lords, she fits right in. I think that it's more important to leave in the details of her being adopted, but not necessarily all of the details that preceded that. In Castle Dimitrescu, we actually have lore on the daughters and how they actually came to fruition. And we have the backstory there and we have how they were not biological daughters. They were chosen for their extraordinary ability. In that same sense, there is value there in terms of the extended family because they are immediately present, right? But if we had told more of Donna's story with her extended family and kept where her extended family is not physically present, I don't think it would have added very much more. I think what is in currently is perfect. I agree with you. I think we got the balance right. What about Claudia? The gravestone that you have to find. There's a grave when you first come in that's missing part of the stone and you bring it back and you find out that Claudia Beneviento uh, was a nine-year-old when she died and there's no other information on her. Yeah. Do you know, I'm not actually sure if there is. <laughs> on her. Yeah. If there is, I it's not in my files. Oh, so, wow. I, I, yeah. I can't speak to that. <laughs> well, that is certainly interesting. Okay. Then moving on to my next question. I was curious how much of the empathetic reaction from the fans you've experienced for Donna? Not as much as you. Nowhere near as much as you. This is the writer's lot. You know, this is our curse because we're not sort of the visible ones. I often don't get people reacting directly to me about characters and stories. A few, but uh, nowhere near as many, as it sounds like, as you've had. The reactions that I have had about this character, I must admit, I was a little surprised at first just because there's so little of her. I wasn't surprised at the general reaction to the section of the game, which is something I've seen more of. People saying how much they enjoyed this section of the game and how much it creeped them out and how much the giant slug baby scared the crap out of them and you know <laughs> well, and that's great obviously of course you want that it's a horror game the reaction to donna herself as i say i was a little surprised given that she has so few lines if you don't have lines people assume that therefore the, the writer didn't do anything you know, a lot of same people, as the actor yeah yeah a lot yeah. of people don't understand that these things are still written <laughs> um, right it's kind of passed me by a little bit 
But I'm glad, I'm very glad for all the reasons that we spoke about already, because like I say, she is a very tragic character and I, I wanted to be a very empathetic character. Yes, she's a villain. Yes, she does bad things and what have you, but she's relatable in a way that some of the other characters in Village are not. Some of them are, but some of them are not. Yeah, I, I love the fact that people are relating to Donna and that she's had such an impact for so little screen time. Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for portraying her. <laughs> I have one little thing that I want to add. I was asked specifically to let you know this. The monstrous baby has been nicknamed Little Jimmy. And <laughs> now that's canon on Twitter. <laughs> There's a whole story behind it, but I won't go into it. Just so you know, it is now Little Jimmy. <laughs> he also called it Potato Baby. <laughs> the mutant potato baby. How do you feel House Benevento as an environment helped portray Donna's on-screen presentation? And were there any particular areas that resonated with you when understanding her character? I kind of touched on this earlier with the environment, that I think that this part of the game is very much environmental storytelling. And I talked about the silence and the teacups was a big thing for me. But also walking around the house and walking through the garden in front and seeing how meticulous things were and knowing that the care that the gardener put into this and you get a sense of what kind of an environment Donna grew up in and what, what her parents had set up for her before they died. So you have from that, which I, you know, I didn't have as an actor in the beginning, but what I got was you get an idea of her childhood from that. You get a young girl who is scared and deals with a lot of anxiety wandering through that house. Whether or not this was an intentional thing, but having all of the closed doors in the house that you can't explore gave me the feeling of being a child that was forbidden to go places. So those kinds of things, it helped fill out Donna for me in that environment. And, you know, it helped build the relationship that she must have had with the gardener beyond just what the note says, you know, what the gardener's journal says, because you imagine they're the only two people on these grounds and you have to take an elevator in a mountain and you have to cross this rickety old bridge. Like nobody comes to visit them. Donna can't postmate dinner. Like it's, you know, it's nobody gets there. So so being that isolated, not just in, in personality or in psychologically isolated, but also physically isolated completely. And the transition from outside to inside, where outside you've got the sound of the waterfall. So you're not dealing with emptiness outside. You're dealing with some aspect of this is still part of the world. And then as soon as you go inside, you've got almost nothing but that music. And the music being so old, there's an old hominess to that music that is both welcoming and haunting. And I think that kind of encapsulates Donna and having the film strips of Ethan's family. I asked myself, how much of this is Ethan's hallucination? Like, the baby, absolutely. Mia, absolutely. Were the dolls attacking Ethan part of his hallucination? Or was what he saw on the film a hallucination? Or was that Donna's obsession with family? Those kinds of things, I think, were big influence on, on how I felt about Donna after playing the game. The kind of comparison you made with the shut doors of the house and not being able to access anywhere, being prohibited as a child, I think that speaks wonders to how the first time you enter House Beneviento kind of mimics her as a child before she harnesses the power of the pollen of those flowers to cause those hallucinations. And she's just completely restricted. And then later, 
when you experience the upper portion of the house again, every other part of the house, it's open. Everything is in tumult. Everything is in a mess. There's a motion blur added to Ethan's vision. When you first enter the house, it's like Donna as a child being restricted from those areas like a child would be and being isolated and having nothing to do but her dolls. And so later on, when Ethan comes back up the staircase, it seems like Donna has grown up. All of these ailments that are plaguing her psyche are just bleeding out of her. And everything is dizzy. Everything is noxious. Doors are flung open. Dolls are everywhere. Things are flying about. There are knives in the hands of these dolls. It becomes the manifestation of the older Donna versus the child Donna. And what was spawned from a child who struggled with that intense isolation and loneliness after she realized she's being rejected by her own mother. It makes me wonder, the first time she came back to that house alone, how long did it take her to open certain rooms? When she goes down to the basement, how long before she went down to the well, before she opened the laboratory? These rooms were obviously her parents. Was she allowed to see them before they left? Or were these discoveries she made about her parents after their death? Why is there nothing in any of the closets? Even the ones you can't hide in. That's what's interesting to me, is that you can open them, you can't hide in them, and there's nothing in them. These rooms, these environments are not one that you'd expect a child to be aware of or be allowed into. Did she maybe burn and get rid of all her parents' stuff, not wanting to be part of this world that was so close to her that she's just suddenly shockingly finding out about? But she doesn't really get rid of her parents' belongings. She keeps the music box. She keeps all those books. I can't imagine those books all came from her alone. Is all that stuff shoved in the room that's locked? I think we could just speculate all day. Me. <laughs> Are there aspects of the cut content for Donna's narrative you feel would be of value to her character portrayal if explored in a DLC? Well, I don't know what was cut. <laughs> you know, I know what I auditioned with. And, and as Anthony said, those sides are made for the audition and aren't necessarily indicative of anything that you would see in the game. And also, I don't think there was any information in there that was new. It was more the dynamic of the relationship that was different between Donna and Angie. I can imagine based on her backstory. But again, I think not having the information has sparked discussions that are far more valuable. Those cut dialogues that you actually rehearsed with and were very much part of your first impressions of the character, were there kind of any themes or kind of parts of that dialogue from that cut content that then helped you fill in gaps and help you understand the Donna character thereafter? Well, all I really had was one scene, and that was for the audition. It wasn't something we rehearsed with. They'd removed a lot of her stuff before we started shooting. I don't have access to what specifically was cut. I only had access to the audition material. With that, I was given a paragraph of backstory, which I don't even think I could take with me. They showed it to me at the audition. The character was called Annabelle in the audition script, and it was Annabelle and then Annabelle child voice. There was a male character in the scene, and I don't know if the idea was that it was Ethan. I don't know if the idea was that it was Heisenberg or Moreau. Like, there's a chance it was any of those. I think the male character was trying to bring Donna to Mother Miranda, and Angie was very much like the violent, Annabelle Child's voice, was very much the violent response to that. 
What was interesting that isn't in the game, that was in the audition sides, was Donna's interaction with Angie. Because in these sides, Donna was very much like, quiet, our time will come. It was very much like there was an assurance in Donna, almost a calmness that counteracted Angie's violence. And while you do have some of that in the physicality of the characters in the game, you never verbally see... It's different because in the game it is so... Donna's character does operate out of fear. And in these sides, that wasn't as clear. There was almost a dominance in Donna. There was definitely a battle for dominance going on between Donna and Angie in the audition sides. And again, that speaks to that dissociative personality disorder and which personality is going to take full power of the being. And, and sometimes it's not necessarily the host original personality. It can be the personality that fractures off from that. I'm going too much into my Mr. Robot fanboying. <laughs> there is that parallel, isn't there, with that? And all of this has been a privilege, but just to listen to you as an artist, how you felt about that is fascinating to listen to. And when I got the audition sides, in that email, it said, you are only auditioning for the adult version. And I sort of looked at that and then I threw it out and was like, I'm auditioning for both, whatever. <laughs> but that's because I know my my expertise is physical acting. Almost everything else I've ever done in my acting career is very physical. So the idea that I was only auditioning for someone that just stood there, I need to show you, I need to build out this relationship. And if I don't do both sides, then in an audition setting, that's not going to work in this case. I'm not going to be able to show you the dynamics that I think you're looking for. So I walked in <laughs> in all black and I wore like a little black handkerchief on my head, very like somber, knowing nothing about the visual representation of Donna, right? This was just how I was like, okay, what I got from the language and black being a universal color. So switching between characters, it wouldn't be distracting. And I walked in and the casting director was like, okay, so do you have any, any questions before we start? And I just said, how about I show you what I prepared and we can go from there. Wow. Kind of a bold move right? Usually you want to come in with like a question, but I didn't want to give them the chance to tell me no. I couldn't Uh... audition for both. And so I walked over and I set up two chairs. I sat down in one chair and I started the scene and I would jump between each chair depending on which character I was reading. And I actually did all of this, like as Donna, I did this puppeteering because I had no idea what Angie looked like or what kind of doll she was. Then I would switch chairs and I did all of this like marionette movement with Angie, which was a more direct association association between Donna and her control over Angie and Angie's ability to be autonomous and how that battle was happening in that scene. Wow. I feel like I just went off on a whole tangent there. But... No, I would love to watch that edition. Yeah, I mean, I wish I had a copy of it. <laughs> I'd love to watch it. I still want to know about Claudia. I want to explore Claudia. Like, who is Claudia? And also the apples. And I mean, I think really, as obnoxious as that may be, those are the two biggest questions I have. Not only does House Beneviento have an extended kind of family with like a deceased ghost father and ghost children running around the house. She had a spouse and, and children that were like kind of ghost children. So it was like a ghost family dynamic going on in some of the cut content. That would have made it very creepy and sinister, but it would have made her feel less alone. A character who suffers from social anxiety and isolation and you're you're detracting from that part. You're adding the portion that builds up her entire family as a mentally disturbed doll maker family. Maybe they're all feeling a sense of loss. Maybe the children aren't the biological children of her and her spouse. They're just dolls that they 
conjured up that the way they do in the game. Maybe they're dolls that they divided her Kadu among so that they can control them as children. Even if this was explored in DLC, I like that in the core game, Donna and her character and, and the feel of the house and the environmental loneliness contributes more without those extended family characters. When you came to writing Resident Evil Village as a fan of Silent Hill, did your history with the series influence your writing in any way? For example, aspects of Silent Hill you thought would fill the value of Housebitten of Viento's psychological horror? The short answer is yes. Yes. Silent Hill is always a love, you know that. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fan of the Silent Hill franchise, but also this is a Resident Evil game and you have to keep that in mind. As much as this section may feel more like Silent Hill than probably any other aspect of Resident Evil has in the past, it is still a Resident Evil game. And so it's important, always important to keep that in mind. In terms of aspects of Silent Hill that were useful in this section of the game, that's a really tricky one to answer because so much of what's great about this section is the design, the game design, the level design, the monster design, the sound design as well, which is superb. And they sometimes grow out of the narrative, but sometimes the narrative grows out of them. That's how game development works. So I don't want to take credit for too much of that because this was very much Sato-san's baby, this whole section, and he guided it through creation. That said, when I was writing those script pages that ultimately got cut, yes, they were very, <laughs> very Silent Hill in character. I remember one of the versions of the ending I wrote actually had Angie in a way surviving and leaving. She said something enigmatic to you and then skipped out of the doorway into the light and vanished, which is a very Silent Hill thing <laughs> <laughs> and not a very Resident Evil thing at all, which is why it wasn't used. So, of course, it was an influence on writing this section. Same question, Anthony, but just inserting Dead Space. You're author of Dead Space, Dead Space Salvage and Dead Space Extraction. Executive producer Glenn Schofield described it as Resident Evil in space. So, yeah, did any of your writing from Dead Space kind of permeate into House Beneviento? Yeah, I mean, in so much as it's a horror story, then of course there are, you know, there are going to be commonalities and common elements between them. But no, I, I don't think there was really anything specifically about my writing for Dead Space that kind of bled into this. The one big similarity actually points to what I mentioned before about sound design and about areas with no enemies, which is, uh, of course, in Dead Space, there's that famous section when you come back in from outside the ship into an absolute cacophony of light and steam and cramped environment and there's noise and music and my god you know it's just an absolute blast your eardrums off and mm. it's terrifying yeah and it was designed to be terrifying and there are no monsters whatsoever but of course again you don't know that and it's one of the best examples of how powerful good sound design by yes. itself and good environment design can be I think House Beneviento is also now yes. a prime example of what that can do and how you can induce this feeling of absolute terror just by hiding things, just by putting people in a situation where they are helpless and having them think or be worried that they are about to be attacked by something. You don't actually have to attack them. The anticipation sometimes is worse than the event. This is a question, Andy, for you as a gamer, and I know you've had great fun streaming Resident Evil Village to your fans. So as a gamer, did you find Resident Evil Village's first person perspective 
aided or hindered immersion for you when exploring House Beneviento, fixed camera angles were always a key ingredient of classic survival horror. So would you have liked to see House Beneviento presented from that viewpoint? And do you think that could have improved immersion? Resident Evil Village was the first first person game that I had ever played. So I don't have a lot of context. And the reason that is, is, is because when I tried to play first person games before, I hated that I couldn't see what was behind me. Vehemently hated it. Because I'm not a very good gamer. It's really the short end of that. <laughs> and, um, with Village, particularly in House Beneviento, I found that immersion really beneficial. Because it was terrifying, and, and this is, again is a little bit just, I suppose, because of my bias, but I was invested in completing, so I wasn't inclined to quit. <laughs> like I have other first person games that I got comfortable is not the right word, but I got in a groove of not knowing what was behind me and constantly turning around and waiting for that next thing. So yes, I think that the first person was extremely beneficial in this segment of the game, in the whole game, really, but particularly in this segment very much this type of gameplay and the themes that Anthony and the other writers wanted to get across. I think first person is absolutely ideal for that. Mm. Anthony, you wanted to add anything to that? Being a sort of old school survival horror fan, I have no problem with the sort of tank controls and fixed camera angles from those old games. But I also appreciate that, yeah, first person is just more immersive. If, if immersion is what you're going for, then that's how you get it, much more so than with third person. That's one of the reasons why Resident Evil 7 and Village have been successful, is adopting the first-person viewpoint. As an old-school gamer, in some ways, I was like, oh, really? Do we have to? Does every game have to be first-person now? But you can't argue with results. <laughs> I also love fixed camera angles and the classic take on survival horror. But in terms of House Beneviento in particular, I think first-person made certain sequences work better than any other alternative. For example, hiding in that little closet where you kind of yeah. shut yourself in. Um, that would have looked really awkward with fixed hammer. And then also hiding under the bed if you wanted to do that instead. That would have not played out as well. I think a lot of the suspense and a lot of the in-your-face horror elements that Beneviento entertains. I feel like first-person compliments those a lot better than any other portion of the game. So it worked very well in a similar way that it worked well for a lot of RE7 scares. It's opportunities, things like the hiding under the bed. If it was a third person fixed camera game, you know, that simply wouldn't have been there. That wouldn't have been a thing yeah. that you were able to do. But being first person, you could do that. And as you say, it was therefore effective. So well, you're right, it wouldn't have worked in third person, but it simply wouldn't have been done as a result. So it, it's all about the different opportunities that the perspectives give you. But I agree that even if the rest of the game was third person, you'd still want Benevienta to be first person, I think. The theme that we're exploring in greater detail is possible inspiration from the Italian horror subgenre called Giallo, with its thriller, mystery, and detective elements mixed with slasher crime, psychological horror, and sometimes supernatural horror. Whether or not intentional, House Beneviento seems to have links with the Giallo film Deep Red, both in characterization and symbolism. Can you speak on this? And are you a fan of the Giallo genre? So I like a good Giallo. I am actually not familiar with Deep Red. I mean, I've, I've heard of it, but I haven't, I'm not familiar with it in terms of, you know, I haven't watched it. The Jallo influences, they're undeniable and they're there in Resident Evil, but no more so than other influences from other more traditional or modern horror movies. There are even some aspects that you could point to as being influenced by classic Hammer horror <laughs> movies, uh, yeah. especially in the Lady Dimitrescu sequences. So 
I don't want to say too much about this because I always worry, partly because this is a collaborative thing and some of these influences are, you know, from other people, not me, and I don't want to speak for them, but also because this sort of conversation is more interesting when it's between fans and critics. And it's actually better for the creator sometimes to just sort of stand back and let people find these influences or even sometimes infer these influences, because I think that makes for a more interesting conversation. What I will say, the entire Resident Evil crew, as you can imagine, is very, very familiar with all manner of horror movies and novels and TV shows and other games. And so it is a fair assumption to believe that they are familiar with the classics and certainly, yes, with Jallo in general. Those are actually what spoke to me some of the most powerfully about this entire segment. I thought the yarn was like a really clever homage to both Deep Red and Halloween. And by the way, John Carpenter's Halloween was inspired by Dario Argento's Deep Red. Deep Red is the one with a lot of the doll and yarn and supernatural kind of parallels to House Beneviento, as well as the house itself. There's actually a woman in both of those scenes in Halloween and in Deep Red and try to fend off the incoming evil with yarn and knitting needles. House Beneviento, the way it looks, the hanging gardens that kind of come out, the, the greenery that's growing is very akin to an Italian villa. And that looks a lot like the ghost house in Deep Red. Even the paint is peeling off the walls in the way that House Beneviento has. Even the fences and the arched windows and the doorway, how those look are very akin to an Italian villa. And I also want to ask if you're familiar with some of the instances from earlier games, namely RE2. RE2 has this stalker enemy called Mr. X, and he is actually clad in a fedora hat and a raincoat, just as many, many of the archetypal looks exactly like a Jalo killer. And also the art and the aesthetic of a lot of Resident Evil games, having like knight's armor, dining tables, exploitation of art and sculptures, especially in a very arbitrary fashion that don't directly contribute to the plot. I think that's very big in Jello. Films like The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, films like Tenebrae, a lot of Dario Argento and Mario Bava films, they have a lot of pretentious kind of showy environments that are set directly in the scene of the crime. That combined with the fedora-clad, raincoat-clad Mr. X is like, it's always had a really big influence on Resident Evil. And it's kind of instilled certain aesthetic tropes that would remain for years and even decades to come. Castle Dimitrescu has a lot of them as well. The classic knight's armor and the dining tables. The whole Spencer aesthetic, European elegant art aesthetic. If there were any place to pull all of those inspirations from, this is one of the primary inspirations of those films especially. Tenebrae, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, and Deep Red, and then Blood and Black Lace because that one actually deals a lot with um, pioneering the genre as this kind of artsy fartsy fedora clad killer stalking genre and it made it so popular and it spun into so many different influences some of them which would be very supernatural tinted and have a huge emphasis on dolls objects to kind of pantomime what the killer wants to do which is where a lot of deep red parallels actually come in because a lot of the imagery of donna's dolls and them actually attacking flailing with her knives and such is very big in that film even the image of the dolls hanging themselves, being suspended, strung up in the way that they are in the forest before House Beneviento. 
I'm not saying that either of these is true or not true. It's worth thinking, thinking about the Hammer Dracula movies when you think of Hashtim Interest and things like that banqueting table and the environment there. You know, there's a lot of parallels you could draw there as well. And with Donna and Angie, with the sort of the possessed doll, there's an old Hammer movie called Asylum with Herbert Long playing uh, a sort of psychic who possesses, he makes dolls into which he projects his consciousness and commits murder. And I don't know for sure if the other guys in Osaka, if the other members of the Capcom team have even seen those movies, but I assume they have. It's more interesting for critics like yourself to draw those parallels and point them out to the audience rather than us saying definitively, oh, actually, no, that we got this from this movie or this book or whatever. I feel so old now. In the late 70s, I was about four years old. I stumbled across my dad's VHS collection. It could have gone one of two ways, but they were all these Hammer House of Horror videos. I still scarred. I still got the nightmares from them. <laughs> but yeah, it was really interesting listening to Beck talk about how these links with Giallo spoke to her and it's a bit more camper. It's like kind of like almost the English version of Giallo, isn't it? The Hammer House of Horror series. Because I was wondering, would it have even made its way to Japanese shores? Without a doubt, Argento is known in Japan and there's no question that he would be known to the developers because Argento is, rightly or wrongly, he is the most prominent Jello director. Whether the other movies and the other directors would have got over there, like I say, I genuinely actually don't know. But the people who make these games do a lot of research and they are very dedicated to their craft, so they're safe assumptions to make. Anthony, what other references, sources, and inspirations from the wider horror genre were you mindful when writing for Village and the House Beneviento scenario? And do we see any of these symbolisms through the Beneviento house? The visual design and environment design is up to other people, not me, though obviously it would have been directed by Satosan. I can't speak specifically to ornaments and symbolism in the environment. What I can say about my own influences and inspirations is just for Village especially, I really wanted to play up the everyman aspect of Ethan, but the everyman who has been through this before, which isn't something that we often see in horror movies. Normally, because it's one of the tropes of the genre, normally if we see returning characters, it's the final girl, who obviously is going to have a very, very different take than a not-quite-middle-aged man like Ethan. So it's an unusual character just in that respect. And I really wanted to... And I'll take everyone as not just from horror movies, actually, but from, you know, sort of all sorts of other movies and TV performances for that kind of exasperation that he has this time around. It's like Bruce Willis, actually, in the Die Hard movies, I guess, you know, how can the same shit happen guy twice? I really wanted to get that feel across with Ethan. I won't say that Die Hard 2 itself, you know, was necessarily an influence. But <laughs> that kind of feeling was what I was going for with his character. And then with writing the villains, especially the Four Lords and Mother Miranda, it's really difficult for me to say. There were no specific sources. You know, it's not like I said, oh, okay, so for this character, I'm going to draw on this particular movie or book. But yeah, just a general lifelong love of horror movies and books and TV shows and what have you. And taking apart each character and figuring out how they talk and what their reference points are and what their attitude is and what is at the core of their personality. That's something that's really difficult to articulate because as a writer, I just kind of internalize it and I can't really explain how I do it. <laughs> 
Um, it's just something I do and it's part of why I'm a writer and not say an actor like Andy not to say that actors don't do that but they do it in a very different way writers and actors have very different processes of getting to the same end result you know getting to the core of a character and for me a lot of that comes from just absorbing those lifelong influences and always trying to do something a little bit different as well I'm a big heavy metal music fan for example and so there is absolutely an element of industrial music in how I wrote Heisenberg. That may not be obvious to anybody besides myself, <laughs> you know, that may not be apparent to the audience, but it's there and I know it's there and I can feel it's there, you know, there's a bit of Al Jurgensen fuck the world kind of attitude in him. <laughs> That's one respect in which I suppose it kind of is similar to what actors bring to a role. Even if the audience doesn't see it, I know it's there. And that's important to me when I'm putting those words down on the page in just the same way that I'm sure it is for Andy when she is acting those words out on a stage. Andy, can you speak to that? Back me up on that. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I think that actors and writers do go through a different process. My influences in approaching a character are going to be different than yours writing them, but not I think not as much as you might expect. I think once you get down to the core of a character, well, I guess you never know because quite often you don't have the opportunity to talk to the writer. Yeah. So when I created, like when I worked with Donna, my influences, you know, because I didn't come at it with a lot of cultural influences. I came at it with psychological influences just from past studies and research that I'd done, less visually interpretive influences. I guess what I'm saying is, yes, we go through different different avenues, but there are certainly characters that I have come to through music or through certain types of films. It's a collaboration of things, really, is what I'm what I'm trying to say. A lot of people don't realize how many actors and how frequently actors do study psychology and mm -hmm. have those influences to draw on, as you say. You know, it's I think that often surprises people just how interested in psychology actors are. But you have to be because, as you say, Absolutely. that's got to be one of your first ports of call when you're embodying a character. Absolutely. I have a question now. This is for you, Andy. What themes and symbolisms piqued your interest from House Beneviento? And were there any particular aspects that aided your immersion and stood out for you when connecting with Donna's character? Is this in reference to when I was building Donna from my perspective? Or is this when I was playing the game and experiencing Donna from an outside? If I can be really greedy and say both, but <laughs> however you'd prefer. I didn't have all of her backstory when I started acting with her. You know, we talked a little bit about influences and I spoke a little bit about working, like using your dolls to work through trauma and the idea of dolls. So I've never really been a fan of dolls coming to life in horror because I think it's terrifying. I'm big on psychological horror, but not necessarily supernatural in terms of what I like to watch for horror movies. So it definitely piqued my interest that this particular one I resonated with in that I understood the separation of Donna's psychological pieces, that you can be so broken that you need something external to express this other side of you. It's not dissociative identity, but there is an element of that in here where there is a broken nature and in terms of themes, it's an instance of that autonomous, non-living being that is expressing. Because while Donna is controlling her, she visually moves on her own and speaks on her own. And this is one of those instances where that doll comes to life really worked for me on a psychological level. So the theme became more interesting to me in that regard. 
in terms of playing through the game, it was such an educational experience for me from not having had a lot of the backstory to be like, oh, wow, I wasn't way off on that. That's cool. But also the the silence was something that really got to me. Like Ethan's heavy breathing, the empty hallways and the tiny little details in there that told the story. I think a lot of what the gamer experiences for Donna is environmental storytelling and falling into that. And this I got more on my second playthrough when I knew when I almost called him Little Jimmy again. You know what I will? When I knew when Little Jimmy was coming in. So I had more freedom. I knew that I had time to explore the house without that anxiety on the second playthrough. So I did, and I really got into all of the little clues that you can get. Things like where the teacups are placed. You know, and I don't know if these come from different inspirations, but in terms of a theme in playing through and realizing that everywhere that there's a teacup, there's two teacups, which in some way implies that Donna and Angie are always together, which makes sense if Angie's speaking for Donna, but that Donna also sees Angie as a separate being. Yeah. Little things like that really, really captured my attention. Something that I always was wondering myself as a huge fan of the series, Mr. Robot, that disassociative disorder and, and how much was Andy almost autonomous, like you say, Andy. So it's interesting to hear you talk about that. And from the artist's point of view, your own thinking and understanding of how much of that was disassociative and how much they were united. And Donna was aware of everything that she was seeing through Angie's eyes. One yeah. Thing, uh, oh, sorry, go on, Andy. No, go ahead. I was agreeing. One thing I will reassure you of is that you are not the only person involved in the game who found the whole notion of, yeah, the possessed dolls terrifying. I find them creepy, but I know there were people in Osaka who wanted nothing to do <laughs> with that. <laughs> they were like, oh, do I really, do I have to work on this? Really? There is nothing more terrifying to me than dolls come to life. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fairly common fear, I think. If I hadn't been on the creation side of it, I think that House Beneviento would have been far more terrifying for me than it already was. But knowing that every time I saw Angie, I was thinking of Paula. Mm -hmm. So I just was like on my stream, just cussing Paula out the whole time for being a creep. It just, it lessens it a little. So it's not so much that I'm dealing with this doll. I'm also just dealing with my friends. It was interesting that you mentioned Ethan's heavy breathing too, because playing through the game, there's not many times where Ethan really freaks out and he starts hyperventilating. Maybe the largest one in the entire game was House Beneviento, especially when the supernatural elements start kicking in. Well, and so much of what he experiences in House Beneviento is Mia, whether that's feelings of guilt feelings of loss, feelings of love, whatever they are, they are all about Mia. And they obviously have a very intense history and relationship. They've been through a lot together. So yes, the whole level was always meant to be him experiencing these hallucinations of Mia. The details of how much or how little was Mia and how much or how little was other aspects of the house changed throughout development. But that was always at the core of it. And I think that speaks to why he has such an intense reaction. This podcast is brought to you by Podbean. Podbean is the easiest way to create your own podcast. We use Podbean to host the Crimson Head podcast. Download the free Podbean podcast app to start, record, and publish your very own podcast in minutes. Podbean provides everything you need to run your podcast, and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. Download the free Podbean app today. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. 
Head on over to Podbean at www.podbean.com and use the code PODCAST21 for your first 30 days of podcast hosting for free. Now, make for that mansion and go check it out. Andy and Anthony, thank you so very, very much. Very, very special to get this personal insight that we can share with you, artists that have been so significantly connected with this game. Just wonderful as a fan just to listen to you both interacting from the point of view of the writer and the actor. So thank you so, so very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And Andy, it was an absolute pleasure to sort of virtually meet you. The same. It is such a pleasure. And thank you, George, for having me on as well. This has been a delight. It's our pleasure. So goodbye for myself, George Trevor, and I'll hand over to the other guys to say their goodbyes. Yeah, this is a really intriguing discussion. It was just like a really fascinating look into Dana and Angie and the whole house, both Andy and Anthony. Thanks for being on here. Oracle Dragon, the storm hasn't blown you away yet, has it? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say thank you both for joining us and filling us in and some interesting insights and some good lore and possibilities that a lot of people have been wondering about. Thank you so much. I just want to thank you guys for your time and for your insight on an area that terrified the hell out of me. <laughs> so thank you both for your time and for your insight on this. It's very fascinating. God oh, well, bless you. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. I really do wish I've enjoyed this an awful lot and I really do wish I could stay longer and uh, I hope that our paths cross again sometime I hope so as well thank you this is an absolute delight I was going to say good night it's not night for most of you I'm sure but for me, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> good night everyone can you see that area behind me beneath the red tinted sky that is what's left of Raccoon City Our platoon is cut off! No survivors found! I'd rather starve to death in here than be eaten by one of those undead monsters! We're both gonna die! Wait, don't shoot! Down! I lost all my men because of her! All is lost. Breeds power. 